Hey people, it's time once again for your favorite podcast, <laughs> or not, the most interesting topic in the room, and today the most interesting topic is the Renaissance. I'm gonna get uh, a little serious, but not too serious. I, uh, I, uh, I have a degree in history, and I obsessively read history, and I, uh, since I, I went on this trip to Italy and came back, I've gone insane in history. But I am not a professional historian, and I am not going to lay a professionally done uh, podcast, professionally made podcast, on the history of the Renaissance. That is not interesting to me, and I'm not going to subject you to that. But I have been doing some reading, and I have a few things that I'm going to offer whilst talking about some of the things I saw on the ground with my own eyes, um, and uh, there'll be a little context. But before that, this podcast is brought to you by Oscar the Cat, the cat who knows the most about me and will tell no one uh, except other cats. He is giving this podcast a provisional two paws up. Uh, he may take one away by the end of the podcast uh, when he decides how I've done. Uh, he may take one away if I don't feed him fast enough or if I don't open the door when he scratches at it which may happen while I am recording this. It has happened in the past. And he's pulled the paw on me. That's no good, man. But uh, what can you do? What can you do? I'm only human. So brought to you by Oscar the Cat, a very uh, happy kitty. He will meow at you, and if you scratch him, he will flop down on the ground for you. There's almost nothing better than that. Okay, well, <clears throat> I was in Italy, and it was my second time there. I was in Florence a second time. I've been lucky enough to go to Florence two times in my life. If I never go again, I am blessed. Um, if I get to go again, I'm triply blessed, and I'm planning on going back at least one more time. Ironically, going uh, this time just m wet my appetite even more and made me realize of all the things I saw that uh, some stuff I didn't realize what it was at the time and I've now come home and I've been learning my brain with new things, new facts, new understandings and I'm, I'm even more blown away that I was standing in front of certain things and I got to go back. I got to go back and I got to stand there again and I got to take it in and really take it in. One more time. That's what happens. Go, you go places, you do things, you want to go back. Oh, man. So, uh, you know, the Renaissance really, I, um, I didn't really care about it. I really, growing up, I mean, I learn things and you study things. And I just, it was not very exciting. I didn't find anything interesting about it. I wasn't very impressed with the word Renaissance. Um, I didn't like the colors of the art. It was all so old-fashioned, and, and it was all strange, and just some time, you know, in a history class, like this, this era that's described, and it didn't mean jack to me. It meant nada, nothing. 
I didn't like it, and I wasn't, I wasn't, it didn't appeal to me. This is a young person, you know, mostly. I just didn't care, and as far as art was concerned, I, I am, uh, have a great love for abstraction, and that was where my, you know, where my interest lay, and got all, got all up on the, the surrealists, and ah, that's so interesting, and then, into the uh, abstract expressionists and oh that's really interesting and just going way out into the into the void uh, having no real understanding of painting uh, what it takes to be a master painter I always went for the end point it's interesting being born when I was and being exposed to the world you know you're, you're post everything even post abstract um, but the whole point of ag uh, the abstract movement was the master painters, the people who learned how to paint and could paint whatever, you know, whatever they wanted, images, actual things that over time that, uh, you know, the evolution of art is to challenge all of that, challenge your expectations, challenge what is art, challenge what an image is, and you start pulling it apart, getting down to its base base materials, base elements, until you've got abstraction. And I just inherently understood abstraction. Just inherently feel it. It's all about feeling. If you don't, if you don't understand it, here's the key to abstract image. Anybody who walks up to it and looks at it and goes, I don't get it. What, what is it? I don't get it. I don't see anything. It looks like a mess. You're missing the point. Uh, it's feeling. It's all about emotion, really. Um, and the key is that even if you're hating it and you're like, I don't understand it, you're having an emotional response to it. And that's all it's about. Being triggered. I get excited. I get I get really excited. I feel things and, I get, and they're good and I get all giddy. But you know, so here's, but that's just, that's just the 20th century. And here's all this stuff from the 14th the 15th, the 16th centuries. What? What? That's so old that it's it's older than old. It's older than the old stuff. There's nothing interesting there. But you know, that's not true. That's not true. Uh, I go to Florence last year and because of a previous trip that I had promised, I, I, I set this trip up and I had promised the people I was traveling with this original trip to France that we would take it easy, wouldn't go running around, it wouldn't be running from museum to museum, and I don't like to travel that way. And then, lo and behold, you know, you're there, and you've got just a certain amount of time, and, uh, you know, you start to move around a bit, and you're kind of moving from place to place, and your days are getting filled up, and the next thing you know, you're in Paris, and it all hit the fan and the days were getting stretched out and there was too much to do and it, that attitude of this is the only chance I'm not going to get to come here again I may never see this this is it and the next thing you know you haven't eaten lunch and people are getting upset and you're unhappy and it's not fun so the, this trip to Florence last year, the first trip to Florence uh, in Italy, I really made it a point that this trip is not about museums. This trip is about being present. It's about being in a place. 
and we're going to take it easy and walk around and eat food and not have an agenda uh, too much. The only thing I cared about at the time was we're here in Florence. I want to see Michelangelo's David and that's pretty much it. I'm okay with missing everything else. And it was great. It was an amazing experience. I fell in love with Florence. It really was lovely. Got to see a lot of stuff just walking around, you know, just being present. And it was mostly about watching people and finding places that are everywhere to eat food and just sitting and really taking it in. But... But this trip, this trip was different. So this trip was initiated by a friend who was, um, has, has, I think I've said, uh, he and his wife have spent 10 years going to Italy, working. They are, uh, they are professional artists. They teach art at the college level and they lead groups of college students in Italy. So when this thing gets kicked off and the six of us go, it's a totally different focal point and I'm along for the ride. I want to ride the ride. And uh, I knew that getting into Florence was going to be museum time. We're going to see some stuff. We're going to get it together. And my buddy before the trip even started uh, sent me a copy of a very important book was written in the 1550s for god's sakes and it's a good book i've been enjoying it it is uh the artist artist and the the renaissance man <laughs> artist architect uh scholar giorgio vasari his book the lives of the artists this uh it, it details the lives of the uh the the artists that he determined to be the most important in the Renaissance, showing uh, uh, three in three parts, sort of shows this first layer of artists in uh, the 1200s uh, into the 1300s that are the, the pre-Renaissance. These are the people that did these things that lead to these other things. <laughs> and in part two, it's these are the people that took those things and did more things that leads up to these other things that are even more incredible. And then part three is leading up to his time, like uh, up, up to Michelangelo, who is his mentor, and Michelangelo is alive at the time. And it's, you know, now we've reached the point of all these things happened in the first two waves, and now it's really on. It's been on. It's happening. The late 1400s into the mid-1500s, serious business, people. Painting is happening. Art is all over the place. And, and, and they're geniuses. They're claiming themselves to be geniuses. And Giorgio Vasari, he writes this book. And that's, quite honestly, it's the first book of its kind. So uh, just a little, bit of, a little bit of history. Just a little bit of history I've learned. I've been really fascinated by this, quite honestly. So the Renaissance. Um, you know, uh, it's a... Uh, Let's get a little historiographical. Historiography is the history of the history. We need to think about, when you think about history, here's something to think about. What do we know right now? Why do we know what we know? And the question, the answer to that question, why do we know what we know, can always be very fascinating. You might look at history and say, we know what we know because we looked at these documents 
you know, and we've got the facts, quote unquote, doesn't take into account the reality of the human experience and the way that people act in their time and the way that they look at the world in their time. And the key to history ultimately is something called historiography, the history of the history. What is written about a certain thing and what then you got to look at well who wrote it what's the time that they wrote it in and what are the beliefs that they have in that time that they're that is coloring their view of the past so that being said this is interesting i think this is great stuff the history of the history what we know of the renaissance is the word itself is fascinating renaissance it's a french word and the renaissance is italian why is the renaissance a french described word well because of historiography my friends historiography the history of the history Jules Michelet wrote a famous work in the mid-1800s, and he was French, about the what he called the Italian Renaissance. And Renaissance is a uh, French word, right? Rebirth is ultimately what we're talking about. A French word. Why is it not the Italian word? Which is... Uh, Oh, uh, uh, I'm going to look at my notes here because I did take notes. Um, oh, that's the wrong note. So the Italian word is renascinta, essentially, in my terrible English pronunciation. Why is it not the renascinta? Why is it not that? Because Jules Michelet wrote this book, and it was a French book, and he was a Frenchman, and he wrote it, and he was so, it was such a popular book that not only did he thereafter name the era after his Frenchness, but he defined what the era was in a way that hadn't been defined before. And we, 160 years later, are still wrapped up in this sort of view, this vision, this this thing. And we call it the Renaissance because of this guy, this French historian in the 1800s. So it's all, you know, history, layers upon layers upon layers. And what was he looking at? Like, this is interesting. He's a French Republican, you know, right? I mean, that means he a Republican, meaning he wasn't a monarchist. He believed in a democratic function and form and that each person is an individual uh, within a democracy and it is not about the power at the top dictating everything it's the power at the bottom all the people together republicanism and he looked at the renaissance the renaissance and uh he you had that Republican lens on and he just looked at the time and he cherry picked, not intentionally, just this is how he looked at the world, what he saw of the era and what he saw of the people. And what he saw was, say, Florence, an independent city state that 
had a Republican uh, government, right? People were elected, essentially, uh, to posts, and there was a certain level of equality amongst uh, the men of a certain class. And, but because Florence w had a lot of wealth and had this independence and had this republicanism, there was a certain amount of education and a certain amount of um, a certain ability for people across the classes to do things and study things and be more what he believed the ideal of a a a country should be right a republican country a, what is french and he he saw that and he dug that and he just described the the renaissance as such and in a way he's pushing his own agenda his ideals of what france should be and he claimed apparently that the renaissance was a french uh, occurrence in history which isn't true but it's a nice thought. It did it did spread out to France. But anyway, so you get these these things and and so then you've got real uh, primary sources or secondary sources, I should say. I mean Giorgio Vasari's book is written in the era. And uh, one of the things that's really interesting about in the era, so you've got the history of the history. People are writing about this and defining it and changing it and sort of saying this is what it was and then putting their lens of the time that they're writing it in. And then we are here and we've taken all that. And just to, in a lot of ways, we accepted everything as it was passed down to us. As history evolves and it's gotten deeper in study, you know, they're starting to pull some of the threads here and it's like not necessarily holding up and we're getting a different view of things, a different vision. Some of it's going to be colored by the lens that we have right now. Some of it's going to be a little more clear, a little more honest little more based on a, a more holistic view of, of history. But you've got Vasari. And and here's one of the things with the, the Renaissance. These people at the time self-defined them. They, they were self-defined. They defined themselves. They recognized that something really incredible was happening. And they were studying it. And they were cultivating it and they were pushing it forward and trying to grow it even more so what it was very briefly was in the 1200s there starts to be a change in the visual art in the painting Giotto being the main guy where he started to break with the past which was the uh, all the images were religious Christian images and they had been done in a particular style, which Vasari calls Greek, which was uh, and medieval and Middle Ages and all this stuff. And he hated it. Gothic. He hated it. Terrible. It's not art. It's flat. You know, there's just like they're images. They're not. It's not an image of a person to look exactly like people do. It's not from nature, which is a big thing for Vasari and a big thing for the Renaissance artists. But Giotto starts to get some texture going on in his paintings, like the robes start to have folds and more detail, and it starts to take on a bit of more like life. And then as time goes on, as he goes through his lives of the artist, he shows this evolution. And 
it grows to the point where people are being driven by trying to capture nature, trying to uh, evolve skill to the degree that when you paint an image, you're painting from real life and you are putting real life on the canvas in a way that will evoke from people awe and feelings that what they're seeing is as if they could walk into the painting or people in the painting could walk out of it. And that's the goal, a purity. And the other part of this is a, it's all a connection back to ancient Rome. Right at this time, there is this deep interest in, in Roman ruins and they're starting to dig stuff up and they're finding stuff. And what is astonishing to me about this era is that these people who are running around and obsessing over, um, over realism in, in, in art and realism, say, in writing as well, uh, they, they are looking back to ancient Rome and seeing a glory that was destroyed that they perceived that in the what they called the Gothic period or the Middle Ages or the medieval period uh, that it was a a terrible thing that the church sort of killed art and killed the spirit of people and that it got really dour and the way that people were taught um, the, the method through which people were taught and educated sort of continued that that feeling, that sense. Uh, a, a lack of, it, it was a theological, a theocratic vision of the world. Everything's about God. People should be on their knees, bowing down and quivering. And everything you do is about uh, showing that obeisance to God. And as time goes on, we reach this period. It's kind of this, this flowering, a rebirth, you know, like there, people are looking at that period and going, ugh, this was bad. This doesn't, this isn't taking us where we want to go now. And we see Rome and, and we see these ruins and we see things, art and sculpture that nobody can do at the present time. Nobody can create this stuff. It's a lost knowledge. And so these people, as time is going on, they're studying these things and they're starting to draw a connection between where they are in time to, and it's, you know, 13, 1400 years past to where humans were and Italians, say Romans were in the past when Rome was a republic, particularly, but Roman Empire, Roman Republic. So there's this connection, and they're freaking out about it. Now, this is the key to the whole shebang. They're looking at the world, and they make a change from the theocratic vision of God and man, and they turn to man, and they start to see that it, the the implicit potential of humans. And you get a, a, a philosophy, essentially, humanism. Um, humanism, that's it's different than what we call humanism now. It's got its own kind of vibe. 
but it's all about looking to classical antiquity and studying it and bringing it to the present. And the fundamental idea, one of them, is that the it, anything that a human mind can conceive, it can be achieved. It can be created. If you spend enough time working or, as Vasari writes with some of these artists, or if you're blessed by the creator and you are a semi-divine being like Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo. Uh, I haven't gotten to it yet, but the Michelangelo chapter by far is the longest chapter and he's, I'm sure, going to wax on and on about the divinity and genius of Michelangelo. Okay, so uh, we've got people now defining the they're defining themselves right they're they're seeing this era that they're living in and they see the potential of humans and they're bringing everything kind of a little bit out of heaven and bringing it down onto the ground and there starts to be a bit of a shift now there's a lot i mean this art tons and tons of this art is still devotional and this is not to say that they turn away from Christianity and God. They shift their focus to human matters and to the, the human realm. But they're very devout. These people are still extremely devout. And there's still a level of devotional painting going on that uh, is equivalent to the past. The quality is superb i mean you're starting to see the same images like there are a hundred thousand madonna and child paintings in italy i swear and you can go from you know the 1100s forward 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 and they're all the, the you know they're this uh, what is called the greek style the byzantine style and you, but you get into the Renaissance and they, with that realism starting to kick in, you really, I mean, there's a dramatic shift. There's a human element that's being infused into it where you start to see emotion being expressed on, on, on the faces of, you know, Madonna's face, uh, Jesus's face, the angel's faces, these different scenes. And they're played over and over again. The Annunciation is a big, big theme uh 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 the adoration of the magi there's like everybody's doing it they keep painting the same images over and over and over again but they're incredible to watch over time as the artists change and the style changes and the the clarity of the human image evolves and gets more and more real and that is a focal point you know it's like and with the sculpture they're looking to ancient Rome and trying to get there. And what, you know, Vasari, the, the, the master is Michelangelo. Uh, but you've got, uh, I mean, the work that Donatello does is incredible. You know, there's all these different people doing sculpture. And they're really trying to reach for Rome. When they pull these sculptures out of the ground... Uh, in Rome and around the, the Italian peninsula, 
they're stunned at what they see. And, you know, and they can reference Greece too, ancient Greece and like the quality and the detail. It's like these people were on a level that we are trying to get back to something, you know, this collapse and calamity that happened over the, the, you know, thousand plus years from the collapse of the Roman Empire to the point in the 1500s when this, well, when Vasari's writing, it's profound. Like they're, they're trying to get back a thousand years of time that has been missed. And I think they probably were looking at like, ah, if it, imagine where we would be if there had been no collapse. You know, the art would be beyond comprehension. So you're trying to get real. You're trying to get go back to the past, but also be in the present. They're defining themselves as different from the period between classical antiquity and themselves, the Middle Ages. They shun it. They're really against it. They don't like it. You know, they see themselves as doing something special in the world, something that's never happened before. They're the center of the of the universe for a while. They act like it, and they make art, and they live in a way that um, they make it real. They're trying to make it real because they believe whatever you think you can achieve. So... One of the things that blows my mind about this period, with all that being said, is that they create not just art, but they create fields of study. Archaeology is born by these people. You know, I mean, that blows my mind. Uh, The study of ancient texts. Uh, there's, There's all these branches of uh, uh, fields of study that didn't exist that had come to it into existence because of the Renaissance, because these people are looking to classical antiquity, and they are desiring to understand it more and know more. So they start going into libraries. They're going into uh, you know ancient church archives. They're going. They're digging into the ground and they're pulling stuff up and they're dis- they're discovering architecture and sculpture. They're starting to you know put things together from the past and reconstructing Rome essentially. They're uh, they're finding uh, works in in libraries, ancient works that have been lost for a thousand years, uh, and pulling them back out. Then they're having to learn the language, you know, the original Latin, what they consider pure Latin, and they're learning that, and then they're translating it into their contemporary languages, and they're, they're trying to get to the source to really understand what is the essence. And it blows my mind. It blows my mind because we have all of these fields that exist, these fields of study, these things that you can do in the world. And to know, like, archaeology, just my prime example, archaeology. Okay, I can go to school, I can go to college, and I can become an archaeologist, and I can do this thing. I just took it for granted that it just has always been around. I don't know why, because I don't know enough. But to learn that this period sets the stage for a whole host of ideas, um, say around, you know, the value of uh, the human mind, the value of a human as a human and the world, the, uh, the ability of people to, you know, to 
to teach themselves things, to learn a new a new thing and actually create a whole field of study and all these people jump into it, that this is one of the main sources for the world that we live in today, right here, 600, 500, 600 years ago, that the world we live in is the world of the Renaissance still, even though it's shaky, we're shaking the foundations, man. We're saying a whole lot of crazy things right now about what's real and what's not. We're getting real serious about tearing it all apart. But before we do, we should maybe take stock and think about, like, for five, six hundred years, certain things, certain ways of thinking, and certain certain modes of inquiry, inquiry have been in play that go right to this period. You know, the study of anatomy, the uh, science, uh, inquiry, scientific inquiry, it all starts here with these people. We've been doing this for so long. It's not something to be thrown aside. It's something to, to understand from a historical perspective and to embrace even more. Like, what an amazing thing. We are living in a world defined still by these people in Italy five six hundred years ago and they were just in their time period and they were stoked about themselves and it was good and it was good and the other thing is you know so they make all this art and they do all these things i mean obviously like i say there's all these fields of study still in existence but the the objects themselves the things they created the buildings they created all the stuff it's still around you know we're still going we're still spending money to go see this stuff and to take it in and it's still beautiful i mean they did achieve what they set out to do seeking the natural world how do we reach nature how do we reach a level that is real when you look at the david and it's not in a picture you got to stand in front of the david michelangelo's david the big david and you got to stand in front of it to really understand what it is it is a piece of marble but it is a man standing there there is your your brain can see him taking a step off that pedestal i mean the musculature is perfect the you know the 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 uh tendons the veins you know the just everything about it is real it's perfect, and I can see why Vasari, you know, is going to go crazy in his chapter on Michelangelo, because just for that thing, he could have done nothing else. Let, you know, good God, the Sistine Chapel, you know, I mean, he did so much, but just that one sculpture, it's phenomenal, it's beyond comprehension, that it is, it captures all the essence of what the Renaissance was was trying to do, be from nature everything from nature it is that and here you know here we are we're still going we're spending money and there's like millions of people streaming into florence uh on a yearly basis looking at this stuff i went into the uffizi so i did go to the galleries i went to the museums this time and i'm so glad i did and i have to say i am so glad i went with who i did because i had a resident uh art expert he's an expert more than i am and you know we go in and 
just to have that that little bit of guide, you know, to be able to stand with my buddy and have him just go like, oh my God, and you're like, you got to see this thing because this is why it's important. Here, Giotto, we're going to Giotto right off the bat. Look at it. There it is. You can see why it stands apart from all of this other work that came earlier because they got the other works in there too. So you can look at that and look at this and see it. It's mind blowing. And then, you know, he's like, all right, pri priorities. We got to go see this other stuff now. Um, and you go over these other things. And it was an amazing tour. And what I got out of it on a personal level was a lot. But I, uh, I was stunned to learn that, you know, I'm talking about Giorgio Vasari. And the guy's all over Florence. I mean, he was the he was in with uh, Duke Cosimo de Medici, and that's a big time guy. You should look up Duke Cosimo because he's the big wig. He's like uh, one of the he's kind of a peak, one of the big peaks of the of the Medici's. Vasari was in there, man. He was he was a resident artist, and he did a whole bunch of work in the Palazzo Vecchio, painting, fresco, and all of this stuff. But he also designed the Uffizi, which uh, was traditionally the uh, Medici offices, which is now the Uffizi Gallery, which is where all of their art is. And he designed that. I mean, it's like this guy he writes the book he designs the building he paints the paintings i mean that is the essence of a renaissance man right they do all the things and um so uh, some of the highlights of this experience i mean i've seen botticelli the birth of venus is like the mona lisa it's on umbrellas it's on mugs it's on everything it has been saturated across the earth uh printed on a bunch of crap and it doesn't mean anything but it's important okay but when you walk in to see botticelli's work in you know in the two rooms it's just botticelli's and the uffizi now i have to say i was really impressed i walked up to the birth of venus I, and i was impressed it's it's nothing like what any reproduction looks like at all of course it's just like the Mona Lisa I've seen the Mona Lisa a million times but when I stood in front of it I lost my mind when I stood in front of the birth of Venus I didn't lose my mind but I was very moved by the tone of it the tonal colors right the the, the tone of the colors it's totally different it's a lot lighter it's very beautiful it almost looks like a fresco it's really gorgeous but La Primavera, Botticelli's La Primavera is an incredible uh, piece of work. Uh, it is, it's about spring, but it's allegorical and it has some mythological people and creatures in it. And in and of itself, it stands apart from the work of the previous period or era. Not that I really, I don't want to separate Middle Ages from Renaissance, quite honestly, because it's really been written out. But just as an easy way to say it, this one period and this other period. So the earlier times, it was very clear. It's devotional art. It's religious. There's Christ. There's the Madonna. There's John the Baptist. There's angels. You know, there's all this stuff. But here in, in the Primavera, you've got, uh, you don't have that. And after walking through the Uffizi up to this point, 
that's all you've seen and you have this it hits you in the face like, whoa this is different this is new and uh it's gorgeous it's fantastic it it, it, it stands out you know i mean it is unlike anything that's come before and it looks a whole lot more real the quality the colors the the flesh tones the clothing so much dynamic beauty going on there but that one was great but my favorite Botticelli holy cow uh the Madonna of the pomegranate now I've seen some reproductions since and it cannot capture this and I did understand in the moment that I kind of figured it wasn't going to get captured so I made sure to take some close pictures of details when you stand in front of that thing it is tremendousness you've got uh, a use of gold first of all in halos these halos are so exquisite and and they are detailed they're not circular they're very complex you know like it's it's a halo unlike anything you've seen but they're it's really finely done it's very faint but it's when you're standing there it's very clear so the halos and the other thing that's really fascinating is this this like uh something like like a clear silk right like a, a white silk that's uh, just a bit opaque but it's barely there it's like a wisp and he painted that and you can hardly see it with your eyes it doesn't show up in a reproduction you cannot see it it is the most exquisite thing and the bigger thing is he gets into their faces the madonna's face and the Christ child's face they their their eyes both have that sort of dreamy far away uh, look of divinity but what's incredible there, there's a couple things both of them have bags under their eyes and they look tired like a mother and young child but the Madonna's face also exhibits a certain amount of resignation in her, in her, she has the beatific eyes, but she also has this sadness in her eyes. There's kind of a look in her face of being resigned to her fate. This uh, sense that I didn't choose this, but this is what it is, and I'm I am uh, you know I, I recognize the the scale of all of this, but as a human woman, uh, I'm I'm a little. I'm a little distressed, you know, like, uh, this is not what I expected my life to be, but this is what it is. That right there is what Vasari's tripping out about with regard to painters capturing nature. It's one thing to paint a Madonna and child as an icon. It's entirely another thing to do it and make them look like people. And the other thing that they're doing, and this is an interesting thing. This is an interesting thing. The other thing that happens in the Renaissance is they start to, they're using certain people as their models. And particularly with the Medici, the Medici show up in all of these devotional paintings. Like, for example, I think it's in this one. Um, the angels and the... the uh, uh, Madonna of the, of the pomegranate one of them 
now I might be getting this wrong, but this is in multiple different paintings. These people are in multiple different paintings, but one of the angels is Lorenzo de' Medici, Lorenzo the Magnificent, as a child. And the, the Madonna in that painting is his mother. And so the artists are using real people as the images in these devotional paintings. I don't know how that flies. <laughs> Seems a little sketchy as far as a theological issue. I don't know. But uh, that's what they were doing. But it's another aspect of nature, but also another aspect of the human aspect, right? We're going to bring real people into this. Then the other thing they did was they took all of these historical, biblical, historical scenes, and they painted them in the wearing people wearing the clothing of the era in which the Renaissance was occurring. People, contemporary clothing, contemporary people. Uh, uh, Botticelli does a adoration of the Magi that's full of Medici's. And like the Medici Pope, you know, and I mean, it's like there's Medici's. He put himself in the painting, you know, I mean, it's it's just like it's amazing to me that they got away with that. But that's what was happening. Now, this just it just evolves. You know, you walk through the Uffizi and you get to see from beginning to end the evolution of Renaissance art. It goes over time. I mean, I have my mind blown by so many things, it's hard to even comprehend. And I'm going to definitely get off track from the topic a little bit, because I do want to address one one thing. Uh, one of the themes that comes up a lot in different paintings, it's the same thing in sculpture, is Judith and uh, Holofernes. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce that name. It's a terrible thing. It's a, you know, a story. The story is a besieging army and a town and city about to fall and Judith finds her way out through the lines and petitions to see the king of the invading army and gets in there and you know I, I think I don't know if she sleeps with him or what she does but she gets gains his confidence and gets him all calm and he falls asleep and then she cuts his head off now, there's this famous painting of this. I've seen this. And I didn't realize who painted it. I did not realize this. Um, now, let me get this correct because uh, I want to get it right. But it was... It, I got to see it. I've seen it before. Judith beheading Holofernes. Pa the painting by Artemisia Gentileschi. Uh, now look that up, Artemisia, look up her painting. I've seen this before, I've seen it in art classes, art history classes, and it's bloody, and it's, it's you know, it's kind of in the in this kind of Caravaggio era where there's a lot of dark, you know, it's all black on the, on the edges, but the, the, the people are being illuminated, and it's all about what is being illuminated, and it really makes, you know, stuff pop out. But let me tell you this. This painting, when you walk around the corner and you see it the first time, uh, it's in the middle of Judith cutting this guy's head off. He's still alive, and he knows what's happening to him. And uh, she's halfway through his neck, and, and there's blood spraying. And let me tell you this. The blood spraying off that painting, in that painting, looks like it is spraying off of the painting. I mean, it's like 
You want nature, you want real. That's one of the most sort of smack you in the face moments where you go, oh my God, there's blood spurting off of that painting. That's a dark image, but it is incredible. It's an incredible thing to take in. You know, like I walked around the corner and I stepped back, you know. I mean, it gave made me react. Whoa, look at that. Oh my God, bloody mess. Uh... The other thing, right in the same room, is uh, there's Caravaggio's in there, and I've never gotten to see Caravaggio in person, and I've always really felt something for Caravaggio, and it's partly because of the that use of the black allowing the light to illuminate the, the figures, and there's such a... It's so powerful, and the painting of this era is so pristine. The flesh tones are so real, the images are so real that it does look like you could reach into the painting. And he did a painting of uh, St. Thomas. You know, so I And I learned something. I didn't know about this. St. Thomas. The Doubting Thomas, right? Who knew? I, I'm just behind the times, obviously. But uh, St. Thomas doubted that uh, Jesus rose from the tomb. And the only way that he would believe it is if he saw the wounds. And, um, and there's a lot of these, the, these, uh, these, you know, St. Thomas images. There's, this is a theme as well that gets painted over and over and over again during this time. But Caravaggio's version is really something. I mean, everybody looks super real. And Thomas has got his finger probing in the the side wound in the christ's side wound there's no blood or anything it's just a clean wound but he's got his finger stuck in that thing in that wound stuck in there it it looks so real i mean it's disturbing and the looks on everybody's face you know i mean that that real there's this, this thing it makes you feel things that i'm telling you i love abstract art and i get i feel the feelings so intensely with that but this stuff is deeper because it's it, it takes you into the human realm it gets deep on you you get in there and you start to like you feel, it's like you're thomas probing the wound it's like oh my god this is so real i don't know what's happening to me i didn't know this was going to happen to me i just walked into the uffizi and the next thing i know you know three hours later my brain is melting out my ear and my eyes are lit up like a pinball machine oh my god this happened it's real and i'm here i'm in it i'm in florence and they've kept it it's all here the buildings are all here the buildings are the same the city is the same and you are in it you want to go you should go get a ticket go go so i mean and i can go on because there's so much more yeah i can go on but uh in essence, I was blown away by the fact that this time period affects us now so profoundly with our fields of learning, with the fact that this art is still affecting people profoundly, the, uh, the, this, this, the, the sense of, you know, it's really extreme now in a different way where we've swung so far, you know, that you you almost can't be devotional and be secular. That's what they were doing. They were 
they found this middle ground where they were totally devotional and devout Christians, but they also celebrated the secular and recognized that that there's certain ways of learning and understanding that don't have to do with religion that you can use to advance your civilization, to advance your art, to advance the world in which you live and to make it better. It's pretty profound, you know? Hey, who knew? You can use your brain. You can conceive of something and you can make it real. And I would say, I was thinking about this today, if you want to have an example, an ultimate example of the mind can think something and the human can achieve that, Brunelleschi's dome on the on Santa Maria del Fiore, the, the Florence Cathedral, that thing is entirely that. Mind conceived it and man created it and it happened. And then nobody had done it before. And quite honestly, nobody's done it on that scale since. Go look it up. Go read about it. Ross King, I believe, wrote the book, Brunelleschi's Dome. Read about it. Then go to Florence. Or go to Florence and then read about it. But one way or the other, take it in. Because the story on that thing is unbelievable. And it happened. And it took... You know, it took the time it took. But this guy conceived it in his mind. Brunelleschi conceived it in his mind and he knew how to do it. He knew how to do this because he went back. He went into Rome. He studied all this Roman architecture. He figured it out and he conceived it in his mind and he knew exactly what needed to happen. And it is complex. It had to be done in this one way or disaster was going to strike. And we're talking about a time when, you know, they're like, climbing up this thing and they're working up really high and they're building it layer by layer and they've got you know wooden scaffoldings and they've got uh, rope and wooden winches and they're winching stuff up and they're doing all this stuff there's no machines obviously you know 1400s and nobody died and it took decades to get this thing built nobody died All because Brunelleschi's mind conceived of something and he acted on it and made it made it real. I don't think there's anything more more a better analogy for the entirety of the Renaissance and that ideal. Conceive it. Make it happen. Learn how to make this painting more real. Make this sculpture more real. Make this world more real. Do it. Get out there and use your brain. All right. That's uh, that's what I got for today. So do good things, be loving, and, uh, you know, it's amazing what can happen in, in a world that uh, you, you make your own. Okay, enough said, people. Get out in the world and be good to yourselves and uh, go, go again. Just go pet a small animal, you know, rub something furry. It, it'll make you feel good. That's all I got to say. See ya.